In this series, we're kind of looking at that process. The process where Jesus takes graves and turns them to gardens. And when we're really looking at this and diving into this, we're looking at three days. That's it. Last week, if you joined us online in person here, you would remember we looked at that Friday. We looked at the brokenness on Friday, the pain on Friday. But what happened on Friday for a certain specific individual, we looked at that day, Friday, through the eyes, the lens of the Roman centurion as he stood at the cross. In the words he uttered, the confession he uttered of, surely, surely this was the Son of God. And today, we're going to look at that next day, Saturday. Saturday. <clears throat> it's the day between the cross, the chaos, the brokenness of death, and the joy of life. I want to take a moment and just maybe take a step back and help us and maybe just try to imagine this day, Saturday, through the lens of a certain individual. This individual would reflect back on this day. I'm, I'm positive of it for the rest of his life. He would reflect back on Saturday and he'd remember the night. He'd remember the night where they actually led Jesus down to be condemned. He would remember the night where they led this Savior down to, to be condemned to the cross. They, he would remember the night hearing the screams, the brokenness, the chaos, and he would stand right there. He would remember the brutal torture. He would remember the spikes in his hand, the, the spikes in his ankles. He would remember the spear in the side, the thorns on his head. He would remember vividly the broken body. Because now it's Saturday, and here he stands holding outside of the tomb a bloody body, a broken body in his hands. And he stands with his friend, wondering and praying what will happen next. And this moment leads us to a question that I believe he was asking in that moment. And even for us today is a valid question for us to ask. And it's a question of where does our faith lie in the period of waiting between the trials and the triumphs of life? Where does our faith lie? Because if we're being very honest, this is the tension we walk in daily. Daily. This question is one that unfolds for us though in scripture. It's a question that we can begin to understand at a deeper level. And, and here's what's interesting. This is, this is a moment in this man's life that I believe was very pivotal for him. And if you look, if you were to look at the weekend of his crucifixion, it's this one day, this one time period that there's not much written about. You can read all about the, the crucifixion. You can read up about all of the, the court hearings and Pilate, the Sanhedrin. You can read all about the, the brokenness of that. And we read all about the resurrection. 
and Jesus defeating death in the tomb and the stone being rolled away. We read all about that, but there's that one day, that day of waiting in between that there is only 20 verses in scripture about this. 20 verses in this whole entire text. 20 verses, short paragraph about the day of waiting between the trials and the triumphs. A day of waiting, 20 verses. Most commonly Saturday, that Saturday between Good Friday and Sunday is known as Silent Saturday. And if I'm being honest with you, I feel like we've been living in Silent Saturday sometimes and I think sometimes we forget that Sunday is coming. (laughs) You see, Saturday though is the day between It's the day between the death and the crucifixion. It's the day between that happening and the rising of the Savior. It's the day between the moments of waiting, the moments of uncertainty, the moments of many emotions, if we're being honest, the moments of the unknown. And something dynamic, though, happens in that day. Something beautiful. In John 19, this is where we're going to dive in today. In John 19, we get a story that we're going to focus on today. The story of the man that we heard on that day of waiting. John 19, 38 through 42, this is what it says. Afterward, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been secret disciple of Jesus, because he feared the Jewish leaders, Asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus' body. <clears throat> so we're going to pause for a hot second here. Cool? <clears throat> Scripture timeout. Um, so Joseph is a Jewish man. And he goes before Pilate and he says, Hey, Pilate, can I go and take the body of Jesus down so that we can bury it? Now, oftentimes, crucifixion, the bodies would be left on the cross for scavenging animals to take apart. It would be left there. And we have to understand that this is a big move. Joseph is going before the Roman official who crucified Jesus, who gave the order, washed his hands, I am innocent of this man's blood, goes before him and says, give me the body of this man. This is Joseph publicly saying, I follow that man. And I will not let him hang there after his death. This is a moment, a big moment for him, a public declaration. Don't forget that. And Joseph goes and he asks him for the body. And then Pilate gives permission. And Joseph came and took the body away. With him came Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night. Scripture time out. Nicodemus had this conversation at night with Jesus. A a conversation about salvation, about being born again. Let's also not forget Nicodemus is a well-respected Jewish man as well. And here these two well-respected men are handling a dead body. Not just anybody. The body of Jesus. And he goes on to say that Nicodemus, he brought about 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes. We're going to get to that in a minute, but don't forget that. 
Continuing on. And following Jewish burial custom, they wrapped Jesus' body with the spices in long sheets of linen cloth. The place of crucifixion was near a garden where there was a new tomb never used before. And so, it was be, it, and so, because it was the day of preparation for the Jewish Passover, and since the tomb was close at hand, they, lead, they laid Jesus there. It's interesting, this text is. Because we get these two secret disciples. We get these two secret disciples who now are stepping out into the public eye and no longer privately following Jesus, but now publicly essentially announcing their devotion to him. I said earlier that these both were well-respected Jewish men. But here's something that maybe we forget is there's a good chance that both of these men were members of the Sanhedrin. Both of these men were possibly standing at the meeting where Jesus was brought and they heard the charges. And one of two things happened. Could it possibly be that maybe they quietly tried to silently excuse themselves so that they would no longer be there? Hide behind others so that they would not be seen? Because this is their Savior. Let's not forget that. Did they try to excuse themselves? Did they try to remove themselves from the situation? Or maybe, just maybe, quite possibly, they just stood there. And they may have been the only two who did not utter a word at that meeting. These two well-respected Jewish leaders, they're well-known. And here they are publicly in the darkness of the night, physically announcing their devotion to Jesus. And what's interesting to me in this moment is this, is that they're well-respected, they're well-known, right? Right? that would have meant that they most likely had servants. They could have sent anybody. They could have sent, not here, man. They could have sent anybody to go to the cross and remove the body of Jesus. They could have sent a servant. They could have sent somebody, but they chose to go themselves. And we have to understand that in this moment, when they go themselves and they physically remove the body, they physically remove the broken, bloodied body of Jesus, they are ceremonial now considered unclean. They have the biggest Passover, like this is in preparation for the Passover to come, and they are now unclean, which possibly could have meant that they would be excluded from what's about to happen. There's a whole bunch on the line for these two men. So why'd they do it? Because it's personal. It's personal. Following Jesus is personal and communal for them. And they no longer are afraid to admit it. It's personal for them. This is their savior who died on the cross. But it's also communal. They went together. They're understanding at the core what was going on. The act of removing the body from the cross 
is, is rather brutal, if I'm being honest. When you remove the body, you would have to remove the spikes from the wrists. You would have had to remove the spike from the heel. You would have had to hold on to his bloody body with the crown of thorns still in the head. It'd be difficult both physically and emotionally to go through with this act. And not only that, but when they were, were preparing the body for, for the moment where they would lay Jesus' body to rest, they would have had to remove every foreign object from the body. Let's also remember what Jesus went through leading up to the cross on the cross, okay? Removing every foreign object. So that would mean that they would examine his whole entire body. And they'd start at the head and they would see the broken pieces of thorn that are pressed deeply into his skull, into his brow. Piece by piece, one by one, they would remove the broken thorns from the Savior's head. They would see his bloody, matted hair, the terrible bruising of the face, the areas of beard that was ripped out, the dry, cracked lips of a Savior. They would turn the body over and see his shoulders and arms riddled with splinters. Each one was carefully and precisely removed with care. His back from the shoulders down was just a bloody open wound. It was a bloody open wound from the scourging that would have taken place at each breath as the Savior tried to lift himself up to breathe one breath at a time. And each time ripping it open. They would remove every single piece of foreign object from his body. And on the front, as they turned him back over in preparation to, to wrap the cloth around him, they would see a gaping wound right below the ribcage. The wound where they pierced him with a spear. But the worst part about it all, the worst part would be watching and looking and seeing the Savior laying there with his eyes that did not open and his voice that did not speak. This is the scene that is unfolding on Saturday. And here's the beauty, though. After they're all said and done, I would have to imagine the deep and intimate connection and the lifelong impression that this moment has on them. For the rest of their lives, as they walk through maybe the marketplace, when they smell those certain aromas, those certain spices, all of these emotions and memories would come flooding back of that night where they prepared the body of Christ for the tomb. The lifelong impression would bring back every mental detail. Every moment they'd smell those scents, they'd remember what took place that, that night. Every moment that they touched those spices, they would remember walking through the town with them. Nicodemus, you could imagine walking through, loaded with the baskets of his spices, 
remembering where he was about to go. Joseph would remember standing before Pilate, asking for the broken, bloodied body of his Savior, remembering that night in the silence, placing Jesus in the tomb. What's very interesting in this text is the unique words that John uses. If we read it, we might miss it right off the bat. I I surely did. But what's interesting is when you read this text, he references the body, the body, then Jesus. Joseph would ask Pilate for the body of Jesus. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. And then taking his body, the two of them wrapped it in cloth. And then at the very end, uh, verse 42, the end of 42, the tomb was nearby. They laid Jesus there. It became personal. It was no longer a broken body, but this was their savior. Once they removed everything, once they prepped him and put the spices, the ointment, the aloe, the oils all on this body, it no longer was the broken body of the savior. This was Jesus that they are laying in the tomb. It became personal. It became intimate. Could it be that in this very moment, this very task, they felt in their hearts the core beliefs of what they believed about this man being solidified? Could it be that what they thought were true, what they possibly knew were true in this moment, they were feeling in their heart the the spirit starting to work in ways and new in fresh ways that he was surely the son of God. Could it be that in this moment where their faith and their trust in him was starting to take the deepest roots ever, And as they walked out of that tomb, and I picture them standing there, having the faith, because in this moment, it's Saturday. They have yet to see the fruition of what Jesus is about to do. In this moment, he's dead. God's quiet. And they are trusting, they are believing. That Jesus is about to do what he said he's going to do. And Nicodemus is standing there. And and we have to understand the price that Nicodemus paid in this. He went out of his way, way above and beyond and out of his way. To bury Jesus in anticipation of what Jesus was going to do. And also in recognition of who Jesus was. If you remember in the text, it said that Nicodemus brought roughly 75 pounds, right? On average, on average, on average, a burial, a normal burial would normally use, give or take, five pounds. Nicodemus brought how many? 75. Now, most kings back in those days would be buried with more as well. But even those, some of the highest ones that they estimate were maybe roughly around 50. Jesus got how many? So we are seeing Nicodemus not just go the normal, not even go above, but he goes beyond 
what is not just required, but what his devotion is. He is physically, financially speaking, his devotion to the Savior of saying, this man surely was the Son of God, and he's going to get everything I can get to him. Every piece. If we were to convert that to today's wealth or money, it is well over $100,000 that Nicodemus would have spent preparing the body of Jesus. Well over $100,000. Nicodemus went way out of his way to go above and beyond in recognition and belief of who Jesus truly is. And in doing so, doing so, you have to start to ask the question also. Did Nicodemus know what's going on for his reputation? The price that he's paying for his own faith right now? I love how Chad Veach puts it, and he puts it this way. Holy Saturday reminds us that the silence of God does not equal the absence of God. The silence of God does not equal the absence of God. Hear me, like, Jesus wasn't being wrapped in the linen cloths, telling them, hey, you missed a spot. He, he wasn't speaking to them. They're not having God the Father. We don't have this moment of the baptism of Jesus where God the Father is speaking to them in this moment. It's quiet. It's also in the stillness, the darkness of the night. It's quiet. And in the quiet, maybe it's just me, but I can imagine that their mind and maybe their spirit and maybe even their faith could be wandering. But yet God is still there. He's right there with them through it all. God was there in the moments when doubt was creeping in. God was there in the moments when fear even crept in. God was there in the moments when uncertainty crept in. And I'm here to tell you this probably is true with our identity and our faith today. The tension of living in the uncertainty, the loneliness, and even the disoriented compared to God is still there in the presence of all of those things. And we can cling, we can cling to God's promises in those moments. Because something brand new, some new life is about to burst through. And I don't know who said it, but I remember writing it down and I love this quote between Good Friday and Easter is the day of waiting. Creation dwells in the big wait between the gardens. I love that imagery. Between the gardens. Life's waiting room requires faith. Is this not where we see Nicodemus? Is this not where we feel like we are in the exact same spot maybe today? That we're in the waiting room, we're trusting and we're believing fully that God is still at work and that God is doing the things that he said he would do? Are we not in similar sandals as Joseph and Nicodemus outside of the tomb after all the work and after all the trusting and believing and hoping that God shines through? Maybe it's just me, but I can remember some dark days. Some days of waiting. If I'm being honest with you, um, <clears throat> I've grown tired sometimes of waiting. I 
I remember when Courtney and I were having those conversations. The relationship was going good. We got engaged and and we're sitting down in premarital counseling and that question of, you know, like, what about your family? And it was that moment, right? My wife would, would tell you that from a deep, deep little girl, she had this deep longing to just be this mom. And she wanted kids, plural, as in like double digits maybe. I started sweating profusely when she said that too. And for me, I was like, I don't know if I could even handle one Kyle Jr., let alone multiple. But that conversation, that conversation, right, of kids. And we had that plan. Ah, you know what? We'll be married like two and a half, three years. We're going to travel the world. And by that, we meant we're going to go on the cheapest vacations we can in the U.S. and stay with our friends as much as we can, mooch off them as much as we can because we were still very poor. But we're going to travel the world. And then we're going to have kids. And two and a half, three years came, and we had that conversation again. And again, Kyle started to sweat very profusely. And that moment came where, you know, we're, we're trying and we're excited. And six months, and we're like, you know, okay, whatever. And then one year. Two years. Four years. Six years. Going on eight years. I don't do this. Um, We had the perfect plan. And here's the beauty. We didn't expect infertility. I didn't expect a thyroid condition. I didn't expect infertility. I had it perfectly mapped out. We didn't expect the nights crying in bed as we celebrated our our friends announcing their pregnancy. We didn't expect showing up to a baby shower and being so excited because at the core of us, we truly were. But we didn't expect going home, not being able to celebrate ourselves because we were waiting. We didn't expect buying the cute baby clothes and it always seems like baby girl clothes are so much cuter than baby boy clothes. But we give them away and and the excitement with everybody's Faces, but we didn't get to truly at the core enjoy that because we were waiting. We didn't expect the emotional floods to open up as you scroll on Facebook and Instagram of the adorable maternity and baby photo sessions that we never got because we were waiting. I have to be honest that in those moments of waiting, I'd be lying to you if I would say, like, doubt never crept in. 
My faith never wandered. It's in the moments of waiting where I have felt some of the most vivid and brutal attacks spiritually. Times of doubt in our faith that God would fulfill this deep desire, deep longing within us. We truly believe that God has put that in us. How could it be bad if God has put that in us? But yet... We wait. And waiting can be heavy. And waiting can linger. Sometimes waiting can even feel like it's about to break us. So where does our faith lie? In the period of waiting between the trials and the triumphs in life. Where does our faith lie? It would have been very easy in some ways for us to become bitter uh, it would have been easy to grow uneasy, to grow in doubt. And some days it was very easy to go that route. And here's our reality. We're still waiting. We're still waiting. My wife has the most tender heart. And she just longs, just longs to know that feeling. And we wait. And so where does your faith lie? Because I believe in that moment on that Saturday as Nicodemus and Joseph were sitting outside the tomb, I truly at the core believe they had to ask themselves the question of, do we actually believe this dude? This Jesus that we just laid in this tomb, do we believe it? Do we have faith in what he said? In that moment, Nicodemus could have only brought five pounds of spices. He could have only brought 25 or 50. He didn't have to go 75. In the moment, though, he could have done what everybody else was doing. You notice that in the scripture, it doesn't say the disciples were out there. It doesn't say the disciples were climbing the ladder, taking his body down. They're not the ones in the tomb preparing him, wrapping him in linen cloths. Where's the disciples? He could have done what anybody else was doing. The public followers of Jesus, he could have done that. Could have just went back to doing what he was doing before he met Jesus. He could have doubted Jesus' words. He could have doubted that he was actually going to come back. He could have left that tomb that night and never been changed. He also could have never gone there. He was wealthy enough that he could have sent a servant to go in his place. And he never would have had to experience this waiting. The tension of waiting. 
And so as we close today, as the band comes up, as we close today, Nicodemus had to wrestle with that question of where did his faith lie? In the moments of trial and triumph, where did his faith lie? I truly believe that Nicodemus chose his faith lays with the buried Savior who's not going to stay there long. I truly believe that his, his faith lays with the soon-to-be-risen king. I truly believe at the core that he chose that his faith was not going to stay in the waiting. It's not going to stay in Saturday. It's not going to stay in the pain and the frustration of today. It's not going to stay in the darkness of the night. His faith is not going to stay in the waiting game. His faith is going to stay in the soon-to-be-risen Savior of the world who hung on a cross for the sin of all mankind and is about to rise again from the grave. His faith is not in Saturday. His faith is going to come and see the grand fruition on Sunday morning. And guess what? Sunday is coming. Sunday is coming. So in the moments today, where is your faith laying? Where's your faith laying? In the moments of waiting, is it laying in doubt right now? In the moments of longing, is it laying in fear? In the moments of this life, in the brokenness and the struggles that we're feeling today, in the moments where we stand and it feels like waiting has lingered for far too long, is our faith laying in Jesus' hands and in his words or in our own? Where is your faith laying today between the trials and the triumphs? Because we can get stuck in Saturday. We can stay in Saturday. And if I'm being honest, it just feels like sometimes our world wants us to stay in Saturday. But Sunday is coming. And when Sunday comes, a risen Jesus walks out of the tomb. I don't know if y'all know that or not. Jesus comes back in the faith of these men is, I'm sure, radically changed. So where's your faith laying today? Where's your faith at today? Father, as we continue to worship, as we continue to just pour our hearts out, Lord, I ask right now that you would continue to stir, convict, and move us in new ways, Lord. That when you call us to take a step of faith, when you call us to step out from our Saturday and into your Sunday, Lord, that we would step knowing that you are God and you can do anything you please. The word impossible is not even a possibility for you. You are God above all. So in the name of the Holy Spirit, Lord, I pray that you would just fill us. I pray right now that you would sweep over us today, Lord. And that you would rest upon us. As for some of us, we may feel like we've been waiting. We've been longing. We've been desiring and crying out. And God, I ask that your spirit would speak to us, would comfort us. Would we feel the warmth of your embrace today? And Father, I pray 
that like when you walked out of that tomb, you made all things new, that you would continue to make all lives new today. That right now, if there's somebody listening in this room or online or maybe later on down the week or in a year or so, Lord, that, that when you move in them, that they would have the moment where they can say, my faith is no longer in Saturday, but it will be on, on Sunday when my Jesus rises again. And that they would step publicly and obediently into a relationship with you. Father, we give you ourselves, we give you our hearts, we give you our lives. We pray this in your name, a name above all other names, the name of the risen Savior, Jesus. Amen.